Welcome to Song Surgery, where we dissect hit records with the songwriters who composed them and the singers and musicians who performed on them. I'm Sid Holmes. Let's get started. We've all heard the stories about singers being discovered at the hardware store or the mall. Sometimes fairy tales do come true, such as the case with Evelyn Champagne King, who was overheard singing while cleaning an office one evening. Co-writer John H. Fitch Jr. recounts how Evelyn went on to record Shame, one of the most enduring classics of the disco era, which would not have seen the light of day were it not for a Baltimore disc jockey's song contest. How long have you been a songwriter? <laughs> wow. Ah, oh, man. Well, started when I was a teenager. And I'm like 77. So that, that was a long time ago, man. I was with uh, Frankie Beverly. You know Frankie Beverly, right, Mays? Absolutely. Well, before Mays, there was the Butlers, which was myself, Frankie Beverly, T. Conway, Joe Collins, and Sonny Nichols. So we were writing songs then, way back in the 50-something or whatever. We did our first uh, song, She Tried to Kiss Me. The Sun's Message. And we all thought our, our groups were the, the baddest groups. <laughs> we always had competition with each other. Did you get any um, hit records out of those years? Yeah, we got some hit records, not not national, but well, she tried to kiss me was pretty, pretty strong hit. It took us to a lot of places, and I was musical director for the showstopper on the tour. They had a hit in 1967, "Ain't Nothing But a House Party." That was a national hit. In fact, I, I wrote the other side of it. What can a man do? Did that flip side get any airplay? Not, not too much in America, because uh, House Party was such a strong hit. I got some, uh, you know, airplay in Europe. That's when I went to London. Uh, we did a tour over there, and we were there for a nice little while. And then I came home. That's when I hooked up with Theodore Life. I knew Theodore Life before I went to England. We all had groups. So when I got back, he was doing production. And he approached me, and we started to get together and talk and stuff like that. That's when he met Evelyn. She was cleaning uh, on the cleaning crew with her mother and father. 
309, uh, Kenny Gamble and Huff. She was working in uh, singing. The song I was singing went like this. I was born. Theodore heard her. goes in and asks her did she want to sing you know and he wanted to record her and uh, mr king and mrs king she didn't want to do it at first she was real shy she was only 16 or something like that she didn't really want to do it so he talked her into it told her uh she was going to be a star and she was all shy i didn't believe it so, you know, then he started calling me because we all wrote songs, you know. So finally, he, uh, I don't know how long it was, but he convinced the mother and father to uh, let him uh, produce her. So they they got together, did all the particulars, you know, paperwork and everything. And next thing I know, she was signed to Theodore. They called him T-Life. And then uh, he called me. So when he called you about her, what was it about Evelyn's voice that he liked? What, what, what sparked in him? Well, she had a real strong voice for a little girl. First of all, she was like real dynamic. Burning, you keep my whole body yearning. You've got me so confused, it's a shame. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. But still, I want to stay. You looked at her, you wouldn't think she was project the way she's projected, but she, I would imagine that's what it was, you know, she could sing really, really belt. So, Do you remember the first time that you met her? Yeah, yeah, I used to pick her up. I used to rehearse her. I would pick her up at the subway and take her to rehearsal, and I would rehearse her, you know, a couple of times a week or whatever. And so, yeah, we got to be really good buddies. So when you rehearse and you coach a young artist like Evelyn, what was the aim? Uh, besides the obvious aim. <laughs> right. Besides trying to get a hit. But uh, what are you teaching her? Voice techniques or breathing? Nah, no, she was a little bit uh, uh, ahead of that. All she needed to do was first I teach her the, the, the melody. It's a plain melody, no swivels, wiggles, nothing. That's the way I always, whenever I would coach an artist or whatever, never. And then once she got the melody down, then I would let her do her. See what I mean? Because I didn't want her to sing it like me. I wanted Evelyn. So she would try, I did not say, okay, then sing it straight, plain to me. And then I say, now, what part would you like to change and, and how would you like to change it? And then we, that's how we work on that part. So when you met her, had you already composed Shane? Yeah. Ruben and I, yeah, we, we had Shane. We had, when me and Ruben T 
did almost all of that album. Shane was just the one that did the thing, you know what I mean? So we uh we already had Shane and some other songs till I come off the road. And- I don't know if it's right. There was some hits on that. You had written these songs and you needed to find an artist to sing them? We had a lot of songs written, songs in, in suitcases that we haven't recorded yet. So, yeah, we were prepared with, with the material. And then up pops Evelyn, and we start pulling them out, the, out of the hat, you know, to see which ones that T felt was the right ones for her. Whenever okay. he we lay them on him, and he'd, give us, he'd say, okay, yeah, yeah, work, work with her on that one, work with her on that one, work with her on that one. That's how it went. So talk about how you would compose these songs with your co-writer. Well, it's like I'm trying to make some food or something, and he says, well, taste this, you know. And then I say, well, taste this, you know. And then we back and forth like that. Ruben is like a genius, man. He eats and sleeps writing songs. Ruben was like a real... As a matter of fact, Ruben was the one that brought the idea of Shane to me. He was chopped full of ideas, but he didn't know much about music uh, rules and how it went. He just wasn't savvy that way. I was, because I had lots of experience, you know, over years. What do you mean by rules? Well, there's certain musical uh, rules that are involved in a song. For instance, you can't change the key three or four times during the doing the song, you know what I mean? You know, there's certain things you can't do, and when he can understand why he couldn't do it, but I did. I actually met him in t Light's office one day. He was sitting out there, and uh, and t Life and uh, his buddies, they had some other things they were doing, so they left, and I took over the office that day, and I told the secretary, who's that guy that every time I come here, I see that guy sitting He's a real persistent dude. Anyway, that day, I said, come on, send him in. And uh, he started with the shame thing. You know, mama said you play in a game. But then he'd go somewhere to left field musically. You see, he didn't understand the laws of music. Music has certain laws that you, you can't just break them. But anyway, I didn't have my axe with me at the time. So I invited him to dinner up my house and he came up and had this little, I call it my little studio in the back. And we went in there and um, I said, all right, hit me up. And he hit me up with what he had. And I came with uh, the rap in your own wannabe part, wannabe. And so we, Winded up with two sing-alongs. They call them sing-alongs. You know about that? What do you mean? They may not even remember all the words to the song, but there's a certain part that everybody sings along with. Like, shame. That's it. Real quick one. Shame. 
What you do to me is a shame. That's it. Short one. Short sing along. Shame. Everybody's they didn't know that. But then when it wrapped in your arms, wrapped in your arms, where I wanna be. Wanna be. I haven't been doing this for a long time. Wrapped in your arms, that's my high. Yeah, that's the second sing-along. So he would, he hit me with his ideas, which he had plenty of them. And then I would come with some melody. And this particular time, that melody became a sing-along. So the song was kind of like a little different in that respect. And it worked. When he first presented Shame to you, the basic outline of it, did something click in your head? Did something tell you, hey, this is a hit record? Automatically, automatically, he clicked in my head uh, when I met him in, in, in T Life's office. Cause I didn't, you know, I just didn't have my guitar with me at the time. But my my ears, man, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where this guy is trying to go, and I like this. He just doesn't understand everything right now. That's why I told him, come on up my crib, man, and let's throw down. And we was doing it ever since, man, for years. Yeah, I felt it was a, a hit, man, really. How long did it take for you to lock in the words, the lyrics? Oh, the lyrics, no, nah, man, less than an hour. It starts, you know, it starts popping. Because Ruben had basically the first part of the song anyway. So after that, the song was together, man. All I needed was a bridge and that melody line, sing along. And we cut it, you know, back there in my lab and uh, hit Theodore with it. That bridge. What rules are we talking about? <laughs> what rules? <laughs> well, let me give you, listen, man. It's all like writing a, a, a story. You know, everything ain't rule or real all the time when you write songs. I love us in my heart, tearing the rules apart. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, I'm doing uh, stupid stuff because I'm in love. You know, I, I shouldn't do that because that's not the rule. You follow me? I follow you. But what amazes me is how um, a songwriter can take exactly what you just said, that thought, and turn it into a lyric. I just find that so fascinating. Hey, man, you know what? I do too, man. I love doing it. And it's an art to it. You find out, it's like you learn how to condense a story. Like you may have a whole long page of a story that you're writing. And then, then you have to figure out certain things, man. And that part really, uh, I like that part a lot. So you've got the song ready. You presented to Evelyn. You presented to uh, T Life. Who who did you present it to first, Evelyn or T Life? No, I always ran stuff by Theodore first because he was the producer, you know, respect thing, and he was picking out the songs. But a lot of times Evelyn would be there, so we look at her face. You know, you don't really want to push an artist to sing something she really doesn't like it. 
if you don't have to. I mean, sometimes you got to tell them, all right, well, look, sing it anyway. Like, like Tina Turner hated, uh, what's love got to do with it? But look what it did for her. <laughs> Speaking of what's it got to do with it. Did she <laughs> like the song? She liked it. She liked it. But he had to make the, the final. And he was like, yeah, yeah. So you coached her on the style of singing the song. Okay. When did you record it? And how did you um, lay down the tracks, the musical tracks? I go over and I lay down the guitar. And then uh, we get to go in the studio, man, and start laying down the tracks. When she got it down where we liked it, as far as her uh, singing and rehearsing, then we go in the studio, lay it down. The music and the vocals, were they performed at the same time? Were they recorded at the same time? No, they don't do it like that. We used to do that back in a long time, back in the day when uh, I was with Frank Beverly and Conway, T. Conway. And them. But that's long been gone, man. That's overdubbing now, you know. You lay down the track, which is the music. Then you bring the uh, artists in to do the vocals. Then you bring the background singers in to do the background. And the band that you used, I understand, they were instant, instant funk. funk. I met them through T-Life. He was friends with them. I, I didn't know them at all until he introduced me to them. And then we all go in the studio and, uh, you know, hey, this is John. And this is, uh, you know, this guy and that guy. That was that was my association with them. Plus, we all got to be good friends. And, you know, after a period of time, because we cut so many songs together. The tracks are laid down, all the music, and she goes in the studio. How old was she when this was recorded? It's kind of risque. She was 16. I believe she was 16. And she was a little teeny bopper, you know, uh, that ran her mouth about her boyfriend all the way from the subway to the rehearsal. And what should I do? Oh, you know, it's little teeny bopper stuff. But when she opened up her mouth, man, and uh, felt it, didn't sound like a teeny bopper. She is a great talent, man. And, uh, she had it going on right then and there. How long did it take her to record? How many takes? Hmm. <laughs> well, wasn't a lot, brother. I can't really honestly tell you how many takes, but it wasn't like not too many because she was already locked in with it before we get there, you know, through the rehearsals. Maybe three, three or four takes. We might keep take number two, and then the third time we just back up and change one spot. You know, you can do that too. So, but it was real short. It wasn't a long drag out thing. She's that good. That saxophone. To me, that just caps off the whole record. Oh, yeah, that's Sam. Sam Peaks. I, I still see him every now and then. Yeah, that was like, see, that's another thing, man, that stuck out so many different little things that you liked. You know what I mean? That that was like a musical hum along. We just start something and say, Sam, blow. You know, everybody knew that, right? Worked out. So when you finally heard, when everything was locked in and you finally mm -hmm. listened to the tune, what'd you think? Oh, man, I was I was tripping. I was like, yep, yeah, it sounds like a winner. Definitely down, sounds like a winner.
So, and everybody else thought that too. And we worked on it for quite a while. I mean, she had some uh, other writers. I think Teddy, Teddy was on it, Teddy Prendergrass. Some other big, uh, name guys came in. But then the, the, the thing that was really ugly, man, uh, at first, man, which is really deep, RCA canned the album. Hell now, see, I think that was 1977, third quarter of 1977 um, that's when it was released okay and they and they put shame on the b-side and took all those other guys uh who had more reputation than reuben and i and put them all on the a-side which i thought was a mistake but you know i understand politics and whatnot so i get a phone call from theodore one day and he tells me man so I was really disappointed that RCA is is is, is canning it, the album, man, canning it because they started off with those other guys' songs, and I'm not knocking them guys, okay, but hey, they didn't pull it off. So RCA wasn't uh, feeling like uh, flipping it over on none of the B-side songs. But this this jockey, I believe he was in Baltimore. He had this show. He liked Shane, okay? And he had the make it or break it thing, you know, where you call in and say, make it or break it, you know, that kind of thing. And his phone's lit up, like, all day, <laughs> every day for I don't know how long. People were going freaking out over Shane. You know, it's a small world. That got to uh, RCA's ears. And they were like, what? And this guy's getting blowed up man his phones won't stop lighting up after that guy made that move that little guy in baltimore wherever he's from everybody jumped on it so this big disc jockey in new york he was the man i can't remember his name now but he started playing it uh frankie somebody was the guy's name in new york i can't i almost said it now frankie was, crocker crocker yeah he was the man at the time um, this this jockey, Frankie Crocker, make you make you a hit, man. Frankie playing it, you got a hit. And then the clubs. And when he played it, bam, it was back on. RCA was back on board. And the whole thing just turned around and the rest is history, you know. All you heard was shame, 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 shame. The next thing you know, uh, back in the studio doing the 12-inch disco mix, okay? So then now everybody's gone berserk over the over this tune. Everybody's playing it now. And everybody's uh, jamming it in the, in the uh, disco. The disco mix, what did you change about the song? Nothing. The disco mix is a, what they call a 12-inch. Didn't change anything. Just broke it down and made it longer. You know, stretched it out. That's what that's about. But one thing about Shame, it wasn't a disco song because one day everybody woke up and disco was dead. And I mean, it was like almost overnight, man. It was really weird. Almost like a, some kind of sci-fi thing. Friends of mine, acquaintances, uh, even killed themselves behind disco dying. It was real creepy. And a lot of disco artists fizzled out. But Shame wasn't really a disco song. Why would you say it's not a disco song? Well, see... It didn't have the headache drum, for one thing, and it had melodies, different melodies, you know what I mean? Disco was basically 
not so much melodic. It was based around a formula. Boom, 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 boom. You know that thing? Mm-hmm. And it's very repetitive. Yeah, that's why we call it the headache drum. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, after you, I mean, I cut some, dis- <laughs> <laughs> I cut some disco stuff too, on some other people, and then. Uh, you know, like in the studio for 10 hours or whatever, or eight hours, and listening to the headache drum. And then they would say, hey, we're going to the disco tonight. You want to come? And I'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) For some more headache drum? I don't think so, brother. So disco was basically stuff you throw in to that formula that never goes away and never changed. It got monotonous and it got redundant. And, And then the next thing you know, it got canned and it was gone. But Evelyn didn't go because we didn't have the headache drum, number one. We didn't have that disco formula. You feel me now? Yes. And we had melodic, good lyrics and melodies. It was nothing disco about it. So they just took it and made the disco formula out of it only as far as making it longer at 12 inch so people would fall out on the dance floor for who knows how long dancing to it. The radio single was released in June 1978. Graduated from high school, went down to Atlanta to college. Let me tell Mm -hmm. you something. To be from Philadelphia and have that song, that hot song down there that summer, I was so proud. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, my chest was sticking out a little bit too, man. You know, uh, I was doing a lot of work trying to get that together, man. It just... It's just that I'll never forget that guy, man. You know, he needs some serious props that turned that daggone album over and, and did that thing, you know, make it a break it thing. And then the next thing you know, it's in Europe and we're like on the Billboard National Charts, you know. And if it wasn't for that guy, man, I always wanted to meet that guy and thank him for, for doing that. And that's what happened. Otherwise, we would went down the down the old proverbial toilet, and a good song would have been lost at that time. Okay, we still would have probably did it somewhere down the line. But that's how it that's how it went down. But God is on the throne, and whatever He wants to get come out and get over and get done is what happens. What did it feel like to have a hit? Oh man, it felt great. It felt great. I mean, I always said I wanted to uh, have a standard song, you know, like Moon River, well, you know, fantasy <laughs> or something. But I didn't expect a song like we call them Shooby Doos, R&B Shooby Doos. I didn't expect the uh, shame to be that it's like a standard uh, Shooby Doo R&B thing, whatever pop crossover. You know, I talked to Evelyn. She's back and forth to um, Europe. They love her over there. She's still over there doing shame. We had a, some kind of dinner and presentation awards in Philadelphia last summer. And she got awards for shame and Theodore was there. I was there. And my wife was squeaking the chair. 
we were all there, man. And she's, you know, it wasn't over until she did shame, man. She can't go anywhere without doing shame. And I like the few other songs that I didn't really have nothing to do with. But hey, something about shame. As you look back on that song and that success, and it's been used in movie soundtracks and it became one of the first records in, inducted into the Dance Music Hall of Fame. Mm. When you when you reflect on it, what do you feel? What do you think? I think that God blessed us, and I'm really grateful that he did that. And one of the things I think, like, hey, a good song stays a good song. And just because some guy can't hear it doesn't mean that it's dead and done. So here's the one thing that Shane was a monster hit too, man. Really, it's still... Still a, a, a big record. And the thing that really kind of freaked me out, which is not a big deal, but it's a funny deal to me that we're in the RCA Hall of Fame next to Elvis Presley. <laughs> in 1978, Shame reached number eight on the Billboard Disco Action Chart, number seven on the Hot Soul Singles Chart, number nine on the Hot 100, and number 77 on the Hot 100 year-end chart.
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and check out the Song Surgery Podcast Facebook page for updates and discussion. Until next time.